Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is adventurer and charity boss Rob Owen OBE. Rob was once an investment banker who flew around the world making tons of money until he became a father for the first time, had an epiphany and jacked it all in to run a charity. During his time as CEO of St. Giles' Trust, it became the leading charity in tackling knife crime and county lines gangs and helping rehabilitate former gang members here in the UK. In the meantime, Rob is a serial adventurer from climbing Everest twice to running the infamous Marathon de Saab, which is 26 marathons across the Sahara Desert, to trekking across the Antarctic. He's seemingly got an endless appetite for extreme challenges. I was excited to talk to him about all of this and more. He's a compelling and inspiring guy with incredible stories to tell. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat, which was recorded on location, by the way, so apologies for the odd dip in sound here and there. Rob, welcome to The Reset. Sam, thank you for having me. Such a lot to talk about. Um, I tell you where I want to start, though, Rob, is I think it was 2007 when you decided to leave behind um, a, a very successful, very lucrative job in finance with all sorts of glamorous international travel and big deals and jack it all in in favour of running a charity that helped rehabilitate young people who'd who'd been exploited by crime how did that decision come about uh yeah no obviously uh, when you look back on it you you think well that's that's a nutty decision but um in fact it's the best thing i've ever done um it's certainly Working in the charity sector was by far the most rewarding. I mean, I don't mean financially, but in terms of just how it changes you as a person, what you see in life, and actually the impact you can make as a human being. I mean, that's been transformative for me. It's changed my whole family, the way we all think. But the, the decision came really, I mean, uh, a few years before, that's when I started at St. Giles Trust, mm. when um, my son was born. And there he was, this little thing. And I just remember thinking, I don't want him growing up thinking it's all about the money. Mm. And um, I had a bit of a moment, if I'm really honest with you, um, that, you know, what is my life all about? You know, what, what have I really achieved? What, you know, what, I'm, I, you know, what, what am I doing? I'm just making rich people richer. It didn't seem mm. very rewarding uh, to me. Um, and we were, you know, obviously the worst time to change career is when you've just got children. So it's, it's a daft thing to do. But um, what was the, the catalyst really was having a conversation with, uh, with, with my wife and saying, you know, I really feel I want to do something more valuable, more meaningful. And this wonderful comment came back saying, Rob, I didn't marry you because you're an investment banker. I married you because once in a while you made me laugh. And she said, just go and do it. Do something that's going to make you feel amazing. And that was the greatest gift anyone's ever given me. Because I could then actually end up doing something I felt incredibly passionate about. And if there's one thing I could pass on to anyone else in the world, it's that joy of doing stuff that you're passionate about. And maybe the greatest advice you can give anyone, any age really is, and it's really difficult because we're all passionate about things, but it's difficult to know what 
you can translate that into a job or what actually you are passionate about at work. Mm. I mean, what I love about you is you found what you love and in a way it's probably understanding people, understanding yourself. But I think in life we've all got something we probably all feel really strongly about or have a passion about. It's just finding what that is and it's not easy. I mean, it takes years and gosh, I mean, I went off to the South Pole to try and find out what I want to do next and I still haven't got the answer. So. <laughs> Um, I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do, but I think once you do find something that you actually go to work, ex and I went to work for 16 years in as running St. Giles Trust with a, with a, with a, literally a skip in my heart, if that makes sense. Mm. And that was the most, that's the biggest gift anyone's ever given me. When you're a banker, I mean, bankers obviously have they, they you know they have a reputation that people it's a, it's one of those easy sort of jobs or career paths that people take the piss out of right and think negatively about. But everyone's aware that the trade off is is that they're very very rich. What you know when you look back, why do you think you or indeed any of your peers end up? in that line of work? I mean, the obvious question, the obvious answer to that is obviously money. Not really. Not, so, I'm, so I've never been a particularly materialistic human mm. being. I'm an incredibly um, competitive human being. Right. And I, if you wanted to get me doing really, getting, doing well as a city, you only had to do two things. Put up a board of who was bringing in the most money. And it wasn't about what I got paid. It was just that I didn't want to be at the, yeah. I wanted to be right at the top. You know, and I have, have sort of battles you know, with my colleagues to, to do that. And unfortunately, you know, would quite often be in the top end. Um, and I suppose the other thing is, I'm just a classic Leo, you know, um, you know in the star sites, you know. Right. If my boss said to me, oh, Rob, fantastic, you've done a great job there, I was happy as Larry. I mean, what I found out at the end of my career in the city, which is rather stupid in respect, retrospect, was uh, one of my old bosses said, we used to love you, Rob, because you work really hard, you get, you know, bring in huge amounts of money, and all we had to say to you at the end of the year was, you've done a terrific job, thank you. And it wasn't about the money, it was just mm -hmm. about that reward. I mean, I, so, uh, in a way, um, uh, yeah, rather naively, I probably should have played my hand a lot stronger in the city, but and I think, I suppose what I loved about the city was, it, you know, I, I, I was blessed to travel all around the world, you know. Uh, you know they, ping you around in Concord sometimes. It, yeah. was, it was silly. I mean, it was daft. And I lived in Japan, which I loved. Um, I loved that cultural experience um, and the chance to live overseas. Um, uh, and you were well paid for it. Um, and But it gave me the chance to travel too. And mm. travel's always been an obsession of my life. So in a way, the greatest gift from investment banking was I made the money and I spent it on travel. I didn't really spend it on anything else, um, uh, really. Um, and I was young then, so I was, I was able to do that. Mm. Um, and I, and I think you end up, you do work with really interesting driven people. And there were some really interesting people in investment banking. It's just, it changed, I think, during my time there. And it changed into something that I didn't like. It changed into being a lot more greedy. Um, a ruthless is the wrong word, because it's always been quite ruthless, but it was, it became much more grabby. And the ethics started to get very blurred. Mm. And not, for, not for me, but for the whole city. Um, and, it's the rise of hedge funds and private equity, which seem to really distort what I think is a, you know, capitalism and its, and its, and its you know, that supply demand. It, it, it came out of sync. You know, there, there's too much greed. There was too much sort of, there wasn't any compassion. Mm. And I found that started, that really started to grate on me. Um, and I suppose what the charities, you know, what St. Giles Trust has really opened my eyes to was, you know, there was this sort of arrogance about investment bankers that they thought, you know, I went into the charity sector thinking, well, this is going to be the easiest job in the world because I've done the most difficult job in the world. And then I get there and you realise the most stressful job in the world is to run a gritty, small charity that's really trying to make a difference. Mm. That is far more stressful than big deals or you know, uh, anything that was going on in the city. Because actually, you and you realise also that the people we were lucky enough to employ were worth so much money to society, far more than any investment banker. Mm. There's not a single investment banker who's worth much to society. I mean, let's really face it. Yeah. And I mean, we're arrogant, or they were arrogant, you know, we're arrogant enough to think that we are, and they get paid for it. Mm. But there's not one that's actually, how many of them really make a difference to society and mm. actually meaningfully change lives, you know, and, and a real contribute to society beyond just giving some of their money away to, to charity with all its, with all its uh, catchments. But you know, my staff were genuinely saving young people's lives. Mm. I mean, and we, we did some um, work with uh, uh, Gus O'Donnell and uh, Pro Bono Economics at 
about trying to evaluate that. And I suppose what I found fascinating was that you know, some of our staff were probably saving the state five or six million pounds a year each, just in their terms of being able to turn very complex, difficult young children away from knife crime, you know, gangs, you know, uh, exploitation, you know, county lines. Uh, and you know, each murder sadly costs the, the state at least a million pounds in police investigations. So they were, they, were, they were regularly saving young kids from getting stabbed or shot and extracting large amounts of weapons off the street. So, you know, arguably, I mean, we, I mean the, the numbers that was run was that, you know, for every one pound invested in our St. Giles Trust work helped save the taxpayer 10. The reality is it's a lot higher than that mm. because prevention's everything. Uh, and I just suppose I, I became incredibly humbled by the fact that um, the young men and women that we were employing who'd all have had a sort of criminal past uh, but could use that to help really mould younger people away from that and actually un explain the pitfalls in a way that I can't do or no, no, no one in the statutory sector can do. They just can't, you know, you know however well-meaning you are, you're still, you know, you've got a uniform on or you're a police officer or you're a probation officer or you're, you know, uh, work for the, um, you know, in a young offenders institution, you're never going to have that credibility. They're never going to trust or believe you, really. And I found that fascinating that with, with, uh, with the sort of training we did with, with our staff um, and then their ability to work within a professional setting, they became these wonderful um, agents of change. And, um, but with the, the authenticism behind it was mm. unbelievable. So for me, as an investment banker, I came in and thought, this is beautiful. This is the most simple, beautiful idea ever. And I've been given the privilege to say, hey, this is crazy. Why is this not everywhere? And I was just very lucky. I, I, I got to know Gordon Brown, who was the prem, then Prime Minister quite well, and got them, you know, that, then Jack Straws of the world to start to really understand the value of this lived experience model. And um, yeah, it started to really sort of take traction. And it's something that, I, that collectively, I think there's no other organization that's done as much in that field around the values of lived experience. And it's not, it, and what I found halfway through was, it's not just about, you know, offending the way lived experience becomes, you know, uh, uh, the model to go forward. Mm. I mean, I was, um, we've got a nutty, you know, chocolate Labrador who I love to bits, mm. you know, she's gorgeous. And I was sat next to the head of training at the guide dogs. And mm. he said, oh, you're Rob we've, um, from St. Giles Trust. We've just pinched your idea. And I thought, well, what's he talking about? I mean, what's he doing? Got offenders now, you know, training dogs? He said, no, 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 no. It's much wider than that. We're, we're trying to actively encourage um, and pay, which is obviously the whole model for me. People have been paid for work, obviously. It's not about volunteering. Volunteering for men, certainly people now, isn't the way forward. It's got to be about paid work. But they were saying, no, that, you know, their, their, their clients effectively uh, visually impaired they felt well, they were the best people to help with the training of some of the guide dogs because no one else knows the needs greater than someone who's there for the whole lived experience mm. model and they are, they're starting to try and roll that out and I just thought wow that's the moment for me to realise that what we're doing at St Giles Trust should not just be about um, the, the, you know, the offender criminal, you know, criminal justice and rehabilitation this could be have such, such wider ramifications um, and actually one of the things we were very lucky with, we got, we got funding from the, the, uh, the big lotteries that was then, um, to help expand the model, to make it much wider than just criminal justice. Um, and that was exciting. So can I just ask you, how old were you when you made that switch, when you left the city and decided to get involved in the charity sector? Uh, so I was in my sort of mid, mid to late 30s. And how, what was your state of mind? Like you've explained, you know, Sorry, what led you? Yeah, I'll be very stupid. I must have been. So I start. That was seventeen years ago. Yeah. So yeah. So very late thirties, early forties. Okay. Just, okay. Just had to get my maths right there. Yeah. You know, it's not good as an investment banker. That. <laughs> years well, you're off, out of practice now. Years off Fifty-seven. It's very yeah. easy, isn't it? That, really? that yeah. um, a missed digit back in the old days presumably would have cost someone <laughs> somewhere millions. Oh, that was funny. So when I went to Japan, um, they uh, they were quite keen for me to be able to do. I mean, I wasn't trading, but because we were doing the investment um, uh, advice, but they wanted me to be able to, to at least do the orders in Japanese. Um, right. So I used to have this very elderly Japanese lady to try and teach me mm. once uh, a week. And I'm a bit dyslexic, well, I'm quite dyslexic, mm. so languages are not easy for me. Um, and I was terrified that I'd be getting it all wrong. But that what was even worse, she taught me very fl uh, flowery, beautiful Japanese, mm. but I was playing rugby for a Japanese rugby team. 
and they would teach me what's called skebe Japanese, which right. is really filthy Japanese. <laughs> and I would constantly get it muddled up, normally during her lesson, which would put her heart into palpitations. <laughs> and on the rugby pitch, I would say something that I thought was super hardcore and magic, yeah. you know, you're a bunch of, and it would come out honorable sirs. Which calls me a lot of place. So yeah, no, um, uh, yeah, no, Getting the numbers wrong is never a good thing in the city. Um, what was your state of mind? Were you, were you miserable with life? Was it had it was it starting to get you down? Was it was there like any impact on your mental health towards the end of your work in the city? Yeah. No, I, d- I definitely say there was. Yeah. Um, I I didn't have a skip in my in my step. Mm. I uh, I didn't go to work thinking yippee. Um, mm. And I, I did for many years. I mean, I, I'm not saying I, that was the way throughout. I mean, you know, I was in the city um, for many years, and I and I, I would say, but and living in Japan, I absolutely adored. But when I came back to the UK and then was working at my last place, um, yeah, it just started to get to a stage where I was really questioning, you know, what I was doing, um, wasn't enjoying what I was achieving, um, felt very, you know, weirdly concerned about having a young person in your life which I found and still do find the most um, difficult thing I've ever done um, in terms of just that responsibility and trying to make sure everything's right and you know if you're a bit of a control freak like me and you know you know to try and make sure every kid is always you know you're always they're all okay all the time Mm. as best that you can Um, yeah I was quite a troubled soul I I didn't I wasn't a happy person Um, and um, I think that's why I was so lucky because I think 90%, 99% of partners would have said, Rob, you've just got to crack on with it. You know, you're, you know, yeah. just, you've just, you know, you've, we've just had a child. I mean, uh, you're, you're a good, you know, you're a successful investment banker. We need, you know, we need the stability. And I think that's what I so admired was actually able to see, no, look, what's more important is for you to do something you, you absolutely love because and I, and I do think that's right if you do something and I was beginning to get to the stage where and I you, you know when you when you when your heart's not in something mm. even though you can help you try and hide it it's very it becomes clear I think to, to a lot of people yeah uh, and I think that's the great tragedy of life is people do try and hide hide things mm. uh, but it does become sort of clear and particularly in the work environment you know you can always tell when someone's not really on it or in it because their, their body language changes, even if they're trying really hard to sort of be upbeat. Am I, am I just, my mojo, just my spirit sunk? So, yeah, I, I sort of knew I, I, I had to do something different. I wasn't at that stage really clear what that would be. And that was, that's the moment of serendipity that really came. And I, and I hope in life, and I, and I sometimes look back and, and think about what's the difference between me and some of the young youngsters that I, you know, we worked with at St. Charles. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it sometimes it's just they haven't had that that amazing moment of serendipity, and in two moments of my life I had two massive bits of serendipity. One was getting into the city in the first place, and a lovely lady called Yvonne Sunes at Namura who took uh, real interest in me and said, you know, you should you'd be brilliant here. And I think if that happened, I mm. wouldn't have gone to the city. And then who knows where I've gone. Um, and I mean, these are privileged problems to have. You mm. know, it wasn't as though I was going to have to, you know, you know, do anything. You know, and, and I suppose the other one was just meeting this incredible professor when I was doing my my uh, MBA, um, which is the, which is why I, I left the city. Thought I'd do an MBA because I wasn't quite sure what I should do. And this wonderful professor called Terry Garrison, um, who was just found it really amusing that everyone was trying to get into the city and I was trying to get out. Yeah. Terry just I became a really lovely. Uh, not friend, but you know, sort of confident, I suppose. And he just said, "Rob, I've got it. You'd be brilliant at running a charity." Mm. And that was the moment. I mean, that was the single most light bulb moment I had, and that that transformed my life. I mean, if I, I don't think I'd have come across the idea of running a charity without that interjection. Uh, and, and yeah, that was that was that's you know, if I could, if I could, if I had to look back in life and think who who are two or three people I really need to say thank you to outside. In each family, you know, Terry would be top of that list. Your values, I mean, we, we look at St. Giles's Trust and what you did, you've talked about a bit, and we'll, we'll go back and talk about it more. But you know, it, this is about helping people who have not, who are from underprivileged backgrounds, um, and you know, turning their life around. And you know, 
having a sort of a, a faith in human nature that people, if given the opportunity, will want to yeah. do something positive with their yeah. lives. Yeah. Uh, is that, were, you're, were you raised with those kind of values? Because you talk about people in the city and, and a lot of people might assume that a lot of people in the city are naturally ruthless, individualistic, you know, uh, out. The reason they're attracted to it is that they're out for themselves. Yeah. You know, I'm just wondering: were you raised with different values, and is that why you felt a better fit? Because you you found something that was more aligned with your own values that you'd been raised with. Yeah. No, so, I mean, I was raised. I mean, I was, I, I was uh, raised with a very sort of northern ethos. Um, right. Dad, my dad was a big character. My grandfather, who I spent a lot of time with, uh, Les um, Owen, um, played. You know played us a rugby league in Wigan, where he's from, you know, and, and was a real local character. So, and, and there was a very, um, very strong northern uh, uh, feel to my, my upbringing in terms of, you know, treating people equally. My, the one thing my dad would be always, and mum uh, would always be on about me, is, you, you know, you need to treat everyone equally. Uh, I, I've always rather liked that. You know, you, you know that I thought the, the, the quote in the you know, if poem, you know, be able to talk to kings and, and uh, paupers equally, or along you know, those lines. Mm. And I, I think um, that's something that you didn't get in the city because it was it, it mm. was sort of quite uh, hierarchical. But I mean, what I loved about St Giles is I went in there and I said, right, we're all equal in this. Mm. In fact, you are worth much more than me because you're doing the hard work. You know how to do this. You're the ones turning lives around. Um, and it be, this sense of equality amongst us all, which mm. I really loved, um, uh, and the, the, the respect about the fact that the team were doing stuff that they were really good at. I mean, and dangerous work. I mean, really difficult, dangerous work sometimes. Um, you know, really at the sharp end, literally. And then someone like me, who's you know, as one of them said, uh, "Well, boss, you've gone from being a thief to a beggar, to a beggar," which is one of my <laughs> favourite, favourite moments in the trust. Um, but uh, yeah, they, I think they'll be over the over the year or two. They started to get this inkling that this guy's going to really help make things change here and grow, and we're going to develop. Um, and this became a sort of mutually nice sort of camaraderie, mm. particularly in the early days, where you know you're, we were quite a you know, relatively small London-based charity at the time. Um, you know, everyone knew everyone, mm. and everyone was busting a gut with a single cause. And what I suppose is the first time. I felt I worked in an organisation where there was no politics and where there, everyone seemed to be in the boat rowing in the same direction. Can you, can you just, um, um, so forgive me if you've already done this, but just so people know, what, what is the, the very, in basic terms, the model that St Giles Trust applied to the people it was trying to help? What, what was the model of the charity? So um, we, we felt very strongly um, that... If you could, uh, if you could um, give the right training and support to people who'd had very difficult lives and had been in prison or been in gangs um, uh, and come from a, a similar very disadvantaged background mm. and made very poor decisions previously in their life, um, give them the it was six months training uh, so that they could give the right advice. In prison, these would be people that you'd in, go and train the whilst days. they were still in yeah. prison. After, yeah, that was, a, that, was the, mm. that was the purest form of it. Um, so then during their time in prison, they would be doing all the housing work, all the advice work. So, you know, a single peer advisor, they're called peer advisors in prison mm. during their training, could help two or 300 people a week in really solid, you know, in-depth advice mm. about what they would need to do on release, mm. you know, get the housing sorted out, get the benefits set up, you know, family mediation, all sorts of really, really important stuff. But actually, for, for us, the real gems were when they came out of prison and we were able to employ them on our, on our work. Mm. Uh, you know, whether it's, you know, gang's exit or whether it was meeting people at the gate or, you know, for our female, um, we, we, you know, a lot of female services uh, working with uh, women who've been victims of domestic violence. Um, or sexually exploited, but, but, but the, the person that has helped, the client that has been helped, mm. is talking to someone and looking into the eyes and the soul of someone who's been there themselves. Mm. And they recognize um, you know, that and quite quickly that, wow, this is different. This is someone who isn't going to mock me, isn't going to not understand. It's actually, and actually is a, a very sort of significant role model because they're also thinking, wow, they've done it. They've, they've turned their life around. Mm. 
and what so often clients would say is no one ever no one ever um, believed in me no one ever gave me any any sort of positive sort mm. of recall and often it's quite a lot of little things that make a big difference mm. uh, I mean just little things like I remember more times than and, you know I care to remember uh, some of us, my staff would say you know Rob you're the first person who wears a tie who's even bothered to know my first name mm. and mm. I just found that fascinating that you know when I used to go and wait I, I thought you know because often you'd have to go in, into government or go into prisons or whatever it is you know and so I would always wear a suit and tie because actually you don't know what's going to happen that day you yeah. get called in and you know um, uh, but so at work I was you know until lockdown I was always wearing a suit and tie mm. and you know I tried to make sure I remembered everyone's name Mm. And I think for so, so many of my, I mean, and, and the, the model was really interesting because at the start, a lot of people, uh, even in the statutory sector, would say they're going to let you down, you know, i.e. an offender's going to let you down, they're going to, they're going to, and I just felt that's so wrong, you've got to mm. give people a chance. And what I learned was that, that if you give trust to someone who's never been given trust, mm. they are incredibly loyal. I mean, and I'm not saying it's completely foolproof because of the six or seven thousand peer advisors probably I you know we created over my time we've been let down by by but but it would be a handful we're wow. not talking a percentage we're talking very few numbers of people that are you know badly let us down and I and actually we used to get worse problems with our non-offending staff right so you know, if you really want loyalty give someone a chance and trust them it's so fascinating that like they've done trials on, you know, um, I was reading that Rutger Bregman book. I don't know if you know it, like Utopia for Realists. And, you know, there's trials about giving people, trialing um, universal income, minimum income, right? So they give a bunch of homeless people £12,000. And then they came back in a year and every single person told the people doing this trial, you know, they will spend this money on drugs or yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And I think only one person... Yeah, yeah out of the 12 yeah. disappeared off radar yeah. Yeah. the rest had used the money yeah. to put a deposit yeah. on a rental yeah. then find employment and that was all they needed and it and now you saying this as well it, it really has a you know there is there is it's like there's hard evidence for the fact that people need a chance and if they're given a chance people want to do the right thing with their lives is, yeah. is, is that there, fair i think there's i think i think we i think certainly that it's such a punitive system in so many ways and for politicians they they can never be seen to be soft on crime but the, mm. the biggest the, the most depressing thing is we spend still a lot of money on locking people away in prison mm. um, the reality is that we probably can't afford to have that many people in prison and we'd be much better off spending the money earlier on trying to prevent people going in, mm. into prison so you know the, the worst statistic is things like you know kids who get excluded from school uh, I think it's a 90% chance they then go in to YOI on the prison. Now, they are youngsters who, it's pretty obvious to us as a society, they are in crisis and need. So that's when the intervention should really come in, you know. Um, and and sadly, um, Ministry of Justice spends so little on preventative um, services. So I think it's less than 1.5% of the, the total budget goes on actually stopping people escalating or getting more involved in... in, uh, in um, in crime, and yet they, we'd have to spend a huge amount of money on people, locking people up. But for my argument, it's always been if we could lower that the recidivism rates within people in prison from you know short term people being you know sixty percent likely to go back into prison again to something down in the mid twenties, you know that's a huge mm. saving. Mm. And and just the, the damage to society in terms of you know other lives affected. Um, and I suppose what I found so fascinating was that when we were when we were doing our services, uh, the people we actually helped most, you know, obviously we helped clients, but it's victims that no longer were a victim because that person we helped with has stopped their offending history. Mm. You know, stop, you know, if it's a young kid in a gang, didn't end up murdering someone. Mm. But that young kid that wasn't murdered never knows that that was yeah. of our work. Yeah, yeah. You know, someone who lives, you know, um, in South, Southwest London whose, mm. you know, car didn't get carjacked or whatever yeah. it is because what we stopped a young kid from going on doing something really stupid with yeah. their lives. Never knows. But I always found So that there's an in, invisible yeah. ripple yeah. effect from yeah. the work that you do. And um, well, to what extent is, is mental health, you know, we, we keep reading that there's a mental 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Health epidemic in this country, and we know there's not enough funding to support it. How much of a role is that playing in crime in our inner yeah. cities? So I, um, well, I think, I think for young people generally, there's an explosion in anxiety-related mm. issues, and. Um, yeah, I completely get that. Uh, I think for the most, the kids that we were working with, they don't have access you know, mm. to any, any form of support. Um, you know, they don't have supportive parent or parents. Mm. They're, they're not, the schools just mm. aren't that interested. Um, and uh, it's just overwhelming. And mm. the, only, the only sort of role models they have around them are the wrong role models. Mm. And you know, often even teachers are saying, well, what's the point in teaching? You're only going to go into a gang. I mean, mm. this is how bad this is. This is what my staff feed back to me about their experiences. Mm. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I think, uh, and I, I, it was always fascinating to me talking to governors, prison governors, about what percentage of their yeah, people inside prison, male and female, it's predominantly with a male state, did they feel were a real threat to society? And mm. it was never really any more than 10%. Right. Whichever governor I asked, whatever category. Mm. And I sort of get that from, you know, you know I, yeah, and I think those that are in that 10%, I think that's 90% of that is mental health. Mm. I mean, and we, we're, not, we're not as far, far forward as we should be. I think, you know, there isn't enough emphasis on you know, tackling people's very poor mental health, particularly, you know, the, the, amongst the violent uh, uh, offenders. And, uh, and that, to me, seems to be where it's really driven. And, you know, obviously, you know, uh, you know, even down to the levels of, you know, I find it, I find it absurd that a lot of, a lot of people in prison um, uh, or in criminal justice have very obvious um, things like dyslexia mm. and dyspraxia, but it's never picked up at school, mm. and it should be. You know, you know it, it begins, to, you know, and of course, if you're a young person and you're from a troubled background and you're dyslexic, and you started starting to go to school and fall behind and being told you're stupid all the time, mm. and you get frustrated. And a live case to me was this young girl. I, went, I did this thing called Teachers for School, Speakers for School, sorry. Um, and uh, I went to this school, you know, difficult school, um, uh, lots of problems. And this this young girl came up to me, and I could see she wanted to talk, but she was a bit shy. And anyway, eventually she comes up to me and she says. I'm just about to be excluded from school. And I looked at her and I thought, how can this girl be excluded from school? She's, she's like 11 years old. Mm. And her, her MO was to throw chairs at teachers. Now, of course, that's for any headmaster or mistress, mm. that's for any head, that's a difficult situation. But what used to get her frustrated was that she couldn't understand why she wasn't learning like the others in her class. And I just started to talk to her about letters, about bits, you know, mm. about you know, reading. And it was, it was so obvious that she's dyslexic. Mm. And you think, how can society, how can we as a society in schools not be able to pick that up? But actually what we did, what's, what we're going to do to her is exclude her from school, right? Which it means that she'll end up in a pupil referral unit where she'll, she'll become a huge target for gangs. She'll get sucked into county lines and she'll most likely do something daft and end up in prison, costing mm. society hundreds of thousands of pounds over her, her life. Mm. Or we put in something at the beginning, prevention, that helps her understand how she can get and, and deal with, with that, um, something as simple as uh, dyslexia and understand the benefits of it, uh, of having dyslexia and, and some of the, and some of the, the, the skills you learn from it, um, and actually make a real success. Mm. And I just found that so sad. Mm. That so even on that small level that you would hope schools would be picking up right from the beginning. Exactly. People, yeah. That doesn't seem to be 
Um, let's talk about um, another side of your life, although obviously it's connected, is that um, the first time, you know, I, I became aware of you was hearing about the, you know, uh, at the gym we both use about the, 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 the wild, extreme, some would say just crazy adventures and extreme sort of physical challenges that you engage in when you're not doing all of this work. Um, so it was, you walked across the South Pole. That's right, isn't it? Last year. And then you've climbed Everest a couple of times. You've run marathons, multiple marathons across the desert. Loads of other stuff that I don't even know about. When did this begin and what drives you? Um, I, well, so, I mean, I've had big success in it all. So uh, uh, I, I, um, I've always been really curious and I've always loved, I mean, I uh, would always wonder what it had been like to have been around during the early ages of exploration. You know? mm. uh, um, uh, so I love, I love pushing myself physically very hard. I always have done team sports. That since was. childhood you were yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, had a very curious dad who loved travel too, and I think that gave me a bit of the bug. And mm. I sadly probably injected that into a bit into my children too. Right. Um, um, I think there's an. I'm, I, and I have this view in life, I'd never regret anything I've done, although I've made loads of mistakes. Mm. I only regret things I didn't do. Yeah. And most of my regrets, not that they're huge, are around, oh, I wish I'd, I had the chance to go to Yemen, or mm. I had the chance to go to Tiananmen Square, or oh God, I could have gone and watched the Berlin Wall collapse, but I was too busy at work and I just yeah. had the ideas. And I, those, those, are, those are the sort of things that I regret, not things I did. I mean, you know, going to Papua New Guinea and having bows and arrows shot at you, I don't have any regret of being a bit tragic I've been hit by one, but, yeah. you know, things like that, you just think, that's what, the world is such a, a weird and wonderful mm. and beautiful place, to not go into its dusty corners and find out what it's really like, I think is a great tragedy. And, you know, I was just, I mean, and I was privileged enough that I, I, could, I could do it. Um, um, but, you know, to me, it wasn't, it was, you know, when you're young, it's about exploring, um, in, in, in some ways, quite selfish reasons, because there's so much to learn, and there's there's so much sort of weirdness out there, and to see uh, how different people, different communities live, to me, was always really fascinating. Mm. Um, not, not that you're going to see a lot of people uh, down the South Pole, but, um, <laughs> but I suppose that was driven more by, um, what was it like? You know, what was it like for Robert Scott Mm. to go out for those months uh, and endure you know the, the, the brutality of, of you know um, Antarctica um, what was it like for people to climb mountains you know you know what, what, what's that feeling like when you hear the ice crack and there's you're in a you're in a uh, you know and bits of bits of ice or rocks coming down towards you you know mm. what, what is what is it like you know how does it feel what's and I, I suppose I've always been rather fixated about wanting to have those experiences. So to me, I didn't ever have any really materialistic wants. And I don't, I, it's not doesn't drive, I don't have a fancy car, I don't want, I would never want a fancy car, but I would want to go on a really cool travel experience or holiday. No, but you don't do these things luxuriously either. Um, no, I mean, uh, I mean, the expeditions are always really, mm. really difficult. You know, Belt and braces stuff, but, yeah. right? I mean, you've got to carry stuff, so you're not, yeah. you know, and, and you know, um, uh, uh, I mean, and I do. Well, I mean, it's interesting to me. I mean, because any idiot could be uncomfortable. I mean, that's a, that's an expression mm-hmm. I really understand. Mm-hmm. So you can make it a lot easier for yourself. Um, and I think as you get older, you realise that actually, yeah, you know, you can make it slightly more comfortable. Um, uh, but actually, in the old days, the, the tougher it was, the better. You know, that's what I loved. I mean, you know, um, uh, I, I remember the, my first ever Arctic trip. Um, we. You know, we, we were both new to it, and you know, we sort of ran out of food. We didn't have the right kit. I got frostbite in places you don't want to know about. You know, it <laughs> was um, it was basically a bit of a. Uh, and this was you and a mate. It was, yeah, me and a mate um, who actually Penn he went on to make it his living um, after some advice from me, which I probably probably wasn't the best advice ever. Right. Um, but he found his passion in life. Which is what he became a guide or yeah explorer professional right. explorer wow um, and wrote how do you what well, a professional explorer is, how do you monetize exploring writing and, yeah, st- yeah, and no, what research so, so Ben had a he's a you know really fascinating yeah. character hugely driven on uh, obviously now around um, climate change and the effects yeah. having on the pole the fact that you know 
his uh, his son grandson oh, his uh, son will my godson you know in his lifetime will literally be able to you know swim or sail up to the north pole or summer which has disastrous consequences yeah. for the whole of mankind yeah um but no for, for penn it was um uh you know he, he then did this expedition where he became the first person solo to get to the pole which is a really big deal of the day yeah i don't know if you remember him using these orange flotation jackets to get across the open water yeah so as, as the north, north pole's obviously an ocean yeah um so it moves around all the time. It's it's a fl- fluid thing. Mm. South Pole solid dome doesn't go anywhere. No polar bears. Mm. North Pole, a lot of polar bears. Well, I mean around the pole. So hungry, you know, not great. Mm. Um, and lots of moving water. So he he uh, he had to do both ways. He had to get into his this sort of survival suit to swim across open bits of water. Because obviously, otherwise you'd have to go miles and miles around, mm. all the way around to get across. Um, but they're, they're always, for me, it was always these lurking menace of polar bears that can swim a bit faster than you can. Um, and yeah, so that, that so that became his profession. That's what he, mm. and that's how he made his living. And for you, in I mean, I'm, I'm going to ask you. Obviously, what's the most perilous, dangerous moments, or the moment where you think, well, this is the closest to death? And how did you? What drives you to get through those moments, and then go back and do it again another time? Yeah, I'm actually, I mean, bizarrely, I mean, I mean, I think I mentioned earlier that the the, the arrow, mm. the arrows of Papua New Guinea coming into the the truck we were in, that was pretty close, and then the, the pipe gun going off. And How did that come about? So we were looking to a lovely friend of mine, Paddy, years ago. We were looking to climb this little mountain called Mount um, Wilhelm in Papua New Guinea, and the village we we had to stay in, um, which is the base of the, of the hill, the mountain, I suppose. Um, Rod Basali had organised a bank robbery with another village around the corner in a place called Garoka. It had all gone a bit wrong and <laughs> someone had been killed. So they were, in those days, it was very much a tit for tat. Right. Live war. We got caught up in the middle of this, mm. this sort of hoo-ha. I mean, they were burning villages, there's all sorts of stuff going on. But of course, they, they're very proud of their warrior status and they would be all completely dressed up in, as you see in Papua New Guinea, um, uh, you know, with, 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 um, with bows and arrows, and they were taunting each other um, and killing each other. Mm. Uh, and uh, so me, me and Paddy got caught up in the middle of it. Um, and we became a little bit of a lucky mascot for one village, which I'm not sure we were that lucky for. Um, and then the mission, there's a lot of missionaries in Papua New Guinea, which is, a, you know, you've got sort of different contrasts. Everywhere. Anyway, the missionaries have phoned up the police to say that there's these two white blokes stuck in the middle of this battle. So the police turned up in their in their trucks and M16s, um, uh, and it became really tense because the police were confiscating weapons. Mm. Uh, and there's a difficult relationship between the hill tribes and the police anyway, right. uh, and it all just kicked off, and we got caught up in the middle of that too. Um, but fortunately, you know, um, yeah, well, I mean, that's like, uh, uh, you know, fortunately, no one around us at the time with the police didn't kill anyone, but they were definitely looking to fire weapons at them and I remember pushing one of their weapons out of the way as he was just about to um, at very close range uh, kill a, a, a guy with a pipe gun but he did pull the pipe gun and the thing did only just miss it so probably the wisest thing <laughs> Jesus um, but you know so, so it's both like you think and then and you have this sort of huge adrenaline rush and then it's and then it's just I just it's almost comical I find my way to to, to, it was always this release. I just would laugh. Mm. Um, I, I don't know if that's normal, but mm. uh, um, and I, I wouldn't want to do it on my own because mm. that just seems terrifying. But if you do it with a mate and you have that ability to laugh, it's very powerful. Um, so yeah, so um, I, I, you know, do, do, in a, uh, you know, we, we were. I mean, it wasn't. I mean, we never had. To, I, you know, in the Arctic in the, in the, uh, in the Arctic with the polar bears. They were certainly around us a great deal because you'd see the, 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 their footprints around the tent. Uh, and uh, the first time I did see a bear, I mean, it was rather amusing to me. I was cooking porridge, as you do, uh, and there was this mum bear and, and a cup outside, <laughs> which was rather erotic. Yeah. And um, I remember shouting at Pen, um, Get the camera, get the camera, this is amazing. And mm. he said, No, you get the rifle yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, you know, we're fairly new up there oh, yeah. and the lubricant on the bolt um, had frozen solid because it was oh, about shit. minus 50 or something 
and uh, we couldn't open, I couldn't open the bolt um, to put a, a round in the in the in the spout um, if the bear had charged. Um, I mean, fortunately, it was a mum and a cub, and she was just very curious and wasn't going to make it. it didn't, mm. There was no way going to attack us, but at the time, you don't know that, I suppose. But we, we worked, I worked out this, this rifle now was as bad as useful as a tennis racket because mm. I couldn't do anything with it. Um, uh, and actually, what was interesting, so, so that moment you think, okay, this could be what last year, but it didn't. Um, but again, you just think, right, okay, how am I going to, uh, you know, to learn from it? I mean, mm. I suppose it's also, I remember being in an ice fall once, um, in the Kumbu ice fall uh, on Everest, and this huge slab of uh, ice fell about what looked about 40 meters in front of me. And I thought my guy was with was there, and that'll be it, Kearns, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to phone up his wife, mm. say. I mean, fortunately, it, it, it didn't, but you just think, well, okay, if I'd been two minutes further down, that would have been me, but I wasn't two minutes further down, so I suppose you just go in and go on and think, well, this is it, life, you know, you, you, you just got to, you can't, you can't worry about everything because actually, you know, the, it's, it's, it's something that's going to happen or not happen. Not I'm not fatalistic, but you know I can't control that. That my time going down that bit of ice fall, which is dangerous. I just if I'm very unlucky, I'm at the wrong place at the right time. Even if I'm the best climber in the world, I could just be very unlucky. But you you choose to go into these situations where like the odds, the jeopardy is high, higher than just walking around living yeah. a normal civilian life, and you keep going back to do these things. So. Is there something in you that, you know, is, is like, does ordinary life, yeah. when it's, you know, if, it, if you have stretches of it without going and doing something that is basically dangerous, yeah, yeah. is it a boredom thing? No, it's not boredom. I, I, um, it's not, no, it's not boredom at all because, but I, I think there becomes a time where I feel like part of me is dying. Mm. And I think it's, I have this urge to get out and do things. I mean, they don't all have to be dangerous. I mean, you know, some things like the Marathon de Sable, this, this desert marathon you talk about, it's not dangerous. I mean, well, hang on, it's 20, how many marathons consecutively dead. across yeah. the Sahara Desert? It's quite hard work. You could drop dead. Yeah. <laughs> People must have done. No, I'm sure. Well, I, yeah, I'm sure. I and mean, it's not inherently dangerous. You've no. got someone. No, you're not being chased by a bear. Lots yeah. of stuff coming down here. Yeah. And there, if there's a polar bear there, then mm. global warming's really gone well. Yeah. Um, no, um, uh, but I, so, so it was just, I just felt. I mean, Antarctica is a much safer place, environment in many mm. ways, because you don't have bears, there's no open water. But I just. So it's not about. I'm not craving the danger. Mm. Um, I don't. You know, it, it, but it's more about craving that sense of really challenging yourself and mm. getting completely out of your comfort zone. Mm. Um, I don't know if people talk about getting out of their comfort zone, but actually, um, I find that f mentally really stimulating. You know, how am I going to cope with it? How do I, and I've, I've always loved the ability to, if there's a problem, try and find a, a solution to it. Mm. Uh, particularly in, in the field where, you know, I mean, it's in the, the old days, you know, your skis break, mm. I'd be all over it, whether I can use a bit of string here and put that through there and maybe put a bit of duct tape there and mm. somehow it might fix it. So you love discovering things about yourself through yeah. through challenges. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I suppose also, um, particularly on the bigger expeditions where there's multiple people, just getting to the dynamics of other people, getting to work them out. Yeah. Well, in the, that's what I wanted to ask you about. So in the South Pole, I remember you telling me that, you know, this was an extremely long, arduous trek, and you quite quickly established that the people who you were going to be doing it with, who weren't people you'd known before, they just yeah. were not particularly uh, sociable or talkative. And, you know, I know you well enough to know, you, you know, you're very much a people person. When you talk about your work, it, it all comes back to people and your relationships with people yeah. and, you, and you like to talk and communicate. So how did you get through that? The lo so, that, that must have felt lonely. Yeah. So, well, yeah, I mean, so, uh, it's, I mean, uh, one definitely was talkative, but it's the second language, right? Uh, which is difficult, but it's, uh, it's it, yeah. you lose the nuances of, not banter's the wrong word, mm. but pulling each other's legs yeah because it's it just doesn't quite work and um and and uh and uh our amazing truly amazing uh uh 
Norwegian guide, yeah, she would write, yeah, said right at the beginning, look, I'm not a particularly, I, don't, I like being on my own. So you know where you are. And, <laughs> and how many weeks were you going to spend with her? Well, no, that was, this was, this was going to be, you know, best part of 40, 42 days. 42 days, and she says early doors, I'm not really up yeah, for a chat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's quite Norwegian. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, so... Um, and I suppose, I mean, in a way, the dynamics would be better if there were slightly more people as well. Mm. I mean, it's quite a small group, three. I mean, they always say three is the most difficult number. Right. Two either works really well, or four, but three, two tend to sort of, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, and I did feel, it did feel lonely. I mean, because, and I, you know, I didn't have any great, I didn't, I mean, I was able to use a satellite phone very short, for very brief periods of time um, to, to make, to check in if everything was right at home. Mm. But we'd had this sort of code that even though something had gone terribly wrong at home, unless it involved the ch- our children or my wife, mm-hmm. we wouldn't say anything about it because I couldn't do anything about it. You mm-hmm. know, I, I couldn't get back. It takes weeks to get back. So mm-hmm. it would be, you know, what's... You know, so, so, you know, you, you sort of... Uh, it felt... Um, well, I, I think what I've had... I'd had such strong um, mateships with, um, on my Arctic trips because... Mm-hmm. You know, uh, with with Penn particularly, you know, you're, you know, it's two of us. You know, we went, we did this thing called the, the first ever cro- double crossing of Spitsbergen in the winter. Mm. It was a nutty thing to do. Mm. I mean, crackers. Um, because it was so difficult and so so hard, you create this incredible bonding between us. And I think a lot of that's through just naturally getting on with, you know, liking each other, but also mm. the ability to talk to each other in the first language mm. um, and Australia it's difficult because um, uh, yeah, the, the South Pole arguably was, was, is even more arduous but it's also incredibly structured and I think I found that difficult in terms of every minute of every day you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing so you leave you have to get the tent broken down you know, obviously, you know, got all you know the seven thousand calories you need into you throughout the day. Mm. Um, but you leave exactly the same time in the morning. You can't let anyone. You know, you've got to you've got to be strapped. You've got to have your belt, your harness on. You know, goggles already, mitts already, sleds ready to go at exactly the, the right time because anyone else waiting around, it's really uncomfortable. So standing around in the cold ain't ain't something that Norwegians are keen on. Mm. Um, you know that for that next hour, whatever happens, you're going to be pulling this sledge, like Billio, and then you have 10 minutes break. And that's when you're getting everything done. You're you know, sorting out your goggles, sorting out, getting your food inside, you're getting some water inside you, and then you do another hour, and then 10 minutes, and then you do another hour, 10 minutes. You do that eight times in a day, and then you finish it at exactly the same time. <laughs> and then you've got to get the same regiment to get the, uh, the tent up. You know, I, I used to like doing the cooking, getting the food on, getting all your kit off so that you'd get into um, your, uh, uh, different, uh, different clothing. Um, and then, you know, it was just that regimentation. So it wasn't easy, and you're walking in single file too. Mm. So, um, uh, yeah, it was, it was sort of, it was quite, yeah, it's quite a lonely experience because you're so, so on it all the time. My last question is uh, to do something you said earlier, you described yourself as a control freak. And yet you've just explained how, you know, you'll go on an expedition like like this one to the South Pole and you have to effectively release all control. And this is something that's relevant to almost everyone I talk to on this podcast is that it seems to me one of the keys to sound mental health is acceptance. Yeah. Acceptance of the arbitrary nature of life. Yeah. Yeah. Acceptance that you cannot control everything. And actually it seems to me that people who are adept or learn how to let go of things that they can't control yeah. and, and therefore you know stop being anxious about every eventuality are the people who often get the closest to peace in life yeah. and you said you're a control freak and I can see how that's probably benefited you in your working life in some way sort of thing but you're in a place where you can say I'm going to be weeks from anywhere I'll have a satellite phone and if something has gone tits up at home I actively don't want to know because I have to just release control of that because there's nothing I can do. Um, that to me sounds, if, I don't know if you've, if you've changed or whether this is changing, but it feels like you are able 
yeah. to actually let go of control and, and I just wondered if that's something you feel has been yeah. helpful to you and your mental health and you know because people have anxiety all the time yeah. but yeah. you clearly can let go of things but so I think that's the whole that's that's you've almost hit the nail on, on, on the head there mm. so it's like a safety valve thing so I was building building and building in terms of internal internal pressures on myself mm. internal, you know affecting my mental health having you know and then the chance to get away it's a selfish thing to do, but I got the chance to get away with, with great support from the family, mm. which is really important. If to do it without support, it almost makes it worse because then everything seems wrong. But to go with a blessing and you get there, and you are, what, I, what you learn is you're only able to control stuff that's about four feet from you. Anything else you can't control. Mm. And I think it's, a, it's almost like, and no emails. And mm. no calls and no texts and no one. No ha mm. you, know, you focus. What I so love about these expeditions and why I think I love doing them is because you get there, you start, and all you have to worry about is getting to the end of the day. Yeah. And making sure the, the skis are on. You know, making sure you you know you've eaten enough food. Making sure you know, you know when you get the tent, it doesn't you put it up properly. It's nothing. You know. And I can't control the weather. I can't control what's happening beyond four feet from me. I can control. You know what eat what I eat. I can control. You know um, how I, if I put the right. You know if I've if not. You know if I put the cooker on and I'm not going to blow up the tent. You know, <laughs> but I can't control anything beyond the immediate. Yeah, it's almost like making your world yeah. smaller yeah. Then, in a way, and, isn't it? And, and that's that's the beauty of it. That I I wasn't getting endless emails. Yeah. Um, uh, and it, what's it in it? That if it if it snowed or if it, if it was sunny or if it, yeah. It's still there. You just, you just, you just got to get through the next hour, and I think that that release um, is so cleansing. Mm. So it's like the ultimate detox. I mean, particularly around. I mean, I, I used to go nuts with the amount of emails and stresses that would create, uh, and become addictive. You know, you know, oh. control freak. Yeah. If I, I mean, my 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 weakness is that I have a to do list that I have to do. And I had to do it that day. And I tend to do it as fast as possible because that's my way of doing things. And I'm slightly at the impact of, I'll just do it really fast. It may not be the best, but I've done it. The things are ticked off, yeah. And then, and then I feel calmer. Mm. And that's all wrong, I think. Mm. But when you're out there on these expeditions, you know, actually, uh, although um, it, you don't have control and therefore it's almost a joy that you just relish the fact that yes I've got small things to control mm. and that's that's what I need to worry about really interesting stuff you know what's funny actually just I'll, I'll let you know the reason this podcast and the newsletter and everything around it is called The Reset is three years ago when I was starting it or whenever it was maybe more I'd just received an email from someone through my other podcast um, in which I've been talking a little bit about the way in which people cope with mental health and this guy said that um, whenever things got really stressful and on top of him with work and family and everything else that can overwhelm you he said that's when I just take my tent and disappear into the middle of nowhere for a few days to reset my demons yeah. and that's why I called it the reset because I found the phrase resetting my demons so funny yeah. but it, I could sort of totally get it as well and it's the same thing isn't it as what you're saying it's sort of a bit of a reset you yeah. disappear and, and, and you, you know yeah. activate the release valve yeah um, Rob thank you ever so much oh, for your time um, what a story what a life fascinating can't wait to see what the next chapter is i know that you've stepped down from st giles trust now yeah, yeah. and um we will find out what you're up to next but for now thanks so much for joining me on the reset great sir. thank you good stuff that was rob owen obe what an inspirational bloke i've suggested he could be our next prime minister now he's stepped down at st giles's trust but he doesn't seem interested oh well he'll probably do something more worthwhile anyway and i can't wait to see what Thanks for listening, gang, and please remember to subscribe to The Reset at samdelaney.substack.com for extra podcasts, early access, regular newsletters, and much more. Until next time, be lucky, and don't let the dickheads get you down. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.